Please welcome Paul this morning. Thank you, Rick. And uh, many of you are members of First Evangelical Free Church, and there are some things that you may or may not take for granted that I want to identify for you so you don't take them for granted. This is all before I give my little talk. Uh, number one, don't take for granted ever the fact that your pastor is here on a weekend about missions. Uh, I do speaking at churches maybe 12 or 15 weekends a year. It's not unusual for the senior pastor to be off on a fishing trip because the mission of the church is for somebody else to do. So, you know, give your pastor and your pastors, because I see most of them here, at least I've met a lot of them. I've gone through the, you know, the uh, Hall of Fame and the pictures and uh, tried to identify who's who and who's the guy that looks like Daddy Warbucks and that kind of stuff. Uh, that would be you, Mr. Worship Pastor. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyhow, I don't think Daddy Warbucks had a goatee, though, so there you go. Uh, I grew a goatee once trying to be a relevant uh, youth worker. Uh, I grew because all, almost all middle, almost all, um, uh, what are they called, like, you know, upcoming age pastors now, they seem to have goatees, and they're perpetually under age 30. You know, they're 30, 12, and 30, 13, I mean, but they're, they're always under 30. And I grew a goatee, and one of the people in the group said, you look like Satan. So uh, <laughs> I decided that probably wasn't a good idea. Um, something else that you may know about, and, uh, the very fact that you are a church that's making an aggressive commitment not to be committed to bricks and mortar. Can I get an amen to that? If there's one thing the American church has not learned from the European church is that big buildings do not guarantee long-term spiritual health. Go to any cathedral in Europe and think to yourself of mega churches that get so far in debt, you know, in New England, which is arguably not the most spiritual place, in New England, there are churches that are now condos. You know, there are the actual uh, congregational church in my own hometown of Lexington is now the Boston Buddhist Center. You know, so um, the idea that you do to do, and I think what do you have left in your debt? Two hundred thousand dollars? Two ninety nine. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is a prophetic word. Or that's actually in the Pentecostal circles. You have Pentecostal. You know, here, here, here you just have, in, in evangelical free church, you just have good ideas. You know? It's like, I've got an idea, but if you're in another situation, that's a prophetic word. All right? I think there might be people here in this audience who two or three of them together could retire that debt right now. You know? I mean, maybe so. I don't know. But if the goal is to get as quickly as possible to using that money for outreach, why not do it faster? I don't know. I might be speaking out of turn. Okay. <laughs> All right. Go oh, good. Yeah. Concerning time, the, uh, in, in Africa, the uh, the Africans always say, you know, like you Americans have all the watches, but we Africans have all the time. And uh, that's why my longest service ever occurred in Nigeria. Nine and a half continuous hours. Yeah. It was a lot. A lot of dancing, actually. And I'm not talking about creative dance and liturgical dance. I'm talking about everybody dancing. 
and uh, and that was you know um, yeah that was quite an experience. Anyhow, one more thing to affirm is uh, the progression that those four words that I was at least given the worship, grow, serve, and invest uh, because that's where I want to start this morning when we talk about being. Uh, global neighbors in our ministries, and I want to focus on keeping our priorities in ministry straight. So to do that, I'm going to take you to arguably the most famous uh, missionary verse. I'll allude to it in the next session. Uh, It's oftentimes a theme of a conference. It's been made into multiple songs. It's from Isaiah's uh, experience with God, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Anybody know what Isaiah 6, verse 8 says? Send me, the first part of it though, here I am or here am I, send me. But what I want to do is take us into the context of that verse because oftentimes when we think about being global neighbors in our ministries, we always think about the going aspect of it, going across cultures, uh, going to reach out to international students, going out to uh, short-term mission trips, going to do acts of benevolence in Jesus' name in our communities, etc., But in the context of Isaiah 6, there's a priority that happens that needs to be the priority of our ministries. And I would like to take you there just to take a look at it. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I brought this uh, uh, Bible with me because I'm uh, redoing it. This is called the One-Year Bible. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done the one-year Bible, but it's a wonderful discipline to get you through the whole Bible, even if you don't do it exactly in a year. You know, there's nothing, you don't lose any ground by doing it in like a year and a half or two, you know, but uh, it takes you through the whole thing. So, but I always think it's strange when I, when I read Isaiah 6, because it happens on September 10th. Now, I'm from Boston, and so September 11th, coming up this year, is 10 years anniversary. We had a lady from our church who was on the American Airlines flight. We had a couple of friends of mine that I knew from United Airlines who were on the United flight that went into the towers, you know. And it's an amazing thing because this passage begins with a statement of the sovereignty of God, that God's in control of things. And I always think it's amazing that it occurs the day before September 11th, when in many, many parts of our nation we were wondering where God was in the presence of uh, world history at that point. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I, man, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You see, this sort of I'm ready, I'm available prayer comes in the context of worship. And that's my way of saying, as we think about being global neighbors in our ministries, 
Let's never forget the fact that the ministry is not the first thing we do. Everything we do in ministry, whether it's local or global, whether it's cross-cultural or same culture, needs to come out of a fundamental relationship with the Almighty God. And when Isaiah says, here I am, send me, what he's doing is responding to what he's experienced. So that's where I want to take us to begin with. In Isaiah chapter 6, I don't know if, uh, have you preached on this recently? Because if you did it two weeks ago, I don't want to be too redundant. Isaiah chapter 6, when he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, um, think right now about Egypt. There is scarcely uh, an adult, even in their 50s, who knows anything more than Mubarak being president. This is the reality of uh, Isaiah's Israel at this point. Uzziah has been a king for more than 50 years. And even though he turned corrupt towards the end, he had brought stability to the nation. And when when Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he was reflecting a sense of panic, a sense of urgency, like what's going to happen to our nation? And in some respects, uh, historians say that the downfall of Israel really began the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah's fears were not unfounded. Uh, Legend says that Romulus and Remus the founders of Rome, which would eventually overtake Israel, they were, they were actually born the year that King Uzziah died. And so when he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he's basically saying, in the year that everything was clipped out from underneath us. How many of you are football fans? All right. How many of you have ever played football? Okay, a few. You can remember at least when, Right. You know, there's something that happens. I don't know if you've ever seen this. When, a, when a, um, uh, a, an end, somebody going out for a pass, he leaps up in the air to catch the ball, and the defenseman comes underneath and hits him at the knees, and he does that absolute flip around and then gets, you know, multiple concussion, and he's brain dead and stuff like that. I mean, it's, uh, it's a, it can be a real tragic thing, but it's, you're getting clipped underneath when you're up in the air. This is what Isaiah is feeling about his country. He's basically saying, we've been stable for these number of years in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah's world was in turmoil. But Isaiah has two crises in this passage, actually. He not only realizes that that Israel's in trouble, he also realizes that he's seen God. Now, if you don't study the Old Testament, you don't realize what we sing about you know, we sing, oh, I want to know you, Lord. I want to see your face. I want to, you know, have you hold my hand, this kind of intimacy. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. In Old Testament, no one could see God and live. So when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, he's not rejoicing. He's basically thinking the thoughts of, uh, of uh, Samson's parents who said, you know, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Or Moses, when God said to him, no one can see me and live. But Isaiah lives, and here's how his vision for ministry progresses. And this is the way I want to take it for ourselves. The first thing is he has an upward vision. As you think about being global neighbors, as you think about whatever ministry you're involved in, make sure your first vision is upward. Because you have to remember the world that we live in is going to be constantly changing. And we have to be anchored in a God who never changes. That's why I think it's fascinating that it starts off, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. 
You understand what he's saying? The very throne of Israel is vacant, but God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. God is sovereign. I, I told you last night about that guy Farid from Iran. And when I was talking, I was talking with a group of Iranian pastors, and I asked them all the same question. I said, how do you feel about the current president? And they said, oh, well, who cares about the president? God is God. You know, he's just nothing more than Nebuchadnezzar. Don't forget, that's where, the, that's where Nebuchadnezzar would have been, roughly that same region of the world, maybe, maybe Iraq, maybe Iran. But he said, you know, they're, they're not worried about him. It's amazing sometimes. I can listen to Christians and we wring our hands, you know. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I didn't see Wall Street on the throne. And I, I'm getting to that age where I started watching things. You know, with all the different economic downturns, I can finally now decide that I'm retiring at 96. <laughs> if I die at 92. Um, that's only because I reinvested my life insurance, you know. The, the, the foundation of our ministry is God on the throne. Anything we do needs to be done with the reality that God's on the throne. The only thing that's going to give you patience in working with a Muslim international student is the reality that God's still on the throne. I, I asked someone one time who works with international students, what, you know, from your perspective, <clears throat> how long does it take for a, uh, a Muslim student uh, to become maybe a follower of Jesus? He said, guaranteed 10 years of friendship before they start moving. You have to believe that God's on the throne to be able to have that kind of patience. You know, in America, we, we want everything to be instant. And a lot of our global neighbor ministry is not going to be instant. You know, I have in my other Bible, I shall, I'll show it to you maybe tomorrow, a, a $50 million note from Zimbabwe. You know, your, your, your church is invested in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is not about to have a quick fix. You know, it was $50 million from April 2008 till June 2008. Then it expired. That's how bad the inflation was at one point. It was $8 billion to get a full tank of gas. You know, it's a country that's, that's not, you have to understand that God's on the throne. And what does Isaiah see? <clears throat> he sees God's unchanging rule. You know, Barack Obama is not on the throne. George Bush was never on the throne. Mubarak's not on the throne. You know, we, we don't... We don't have to live our lives in fear. God's on the throne of human history, and that includes any ministry we do of a small or large nature. We need to keep our vision upward, keep ourselves as worshipers, keep ourselves as people who understand the fact that God is sovereign. He's in control. And you know something? One of the things that I feel most of us struggle with, myself first of all amongst sinners here, I struggle when I don't know what's going on. Does anybody else struggle that way? You know, and, and the, you know the, the American Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the first one is be proactive, meaning take control of your situation. Let me just tell you this. If, in case you decide you have never gone on a short-term mission trip and you want to, you'll always do better on a short-term mission trip if you accept the fact that 40% of the time you won't have a clue what's happening. Right? You just go to like, okay. You know? My, my, wife, uh, my wife told me, she says, Paul, you've developed a really irritating habit. We've been married 31 years. I said, which one? <laughs> you know? 
She said, uh, when, when we're in another country and people are speaking to you in the local language, you look them right in the eye and you're nodding up and down like you know what they're talking about and you don't have a clue of what they're talking about. I said, yeah, that's true. But, you know, I just enjoy the fact that God knows. You know, I mean, because you can't, you know, Americans, the first, last night I said the first question Americans ask about short-term mission trips, is it safe? Where am I going to stay is the second one and what am I going to eat? You know, what am I going to eat? And I always say, whatever's put in front of you. And wherever the locals stay, that's where you'll stay. You know, and that means, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because we love to be in control. You know, I, you travel a lot. And it's amazing how many times in the last few weeks I've seen people at the airport who actually believe the person behind the counter controls the weather. <laughs> what do you mean you're not taking off? Well, it's snowing. You know, it's like, it's your fault somehow. He also sees God's holiness. And one of the things I was talking with one of your multiple interns, you have quite a few interns, right? I was talking with one of your interns, and uh, I asked him, uh, give me some words. He's been working here only a few months. What are some words that describe your church? They were all good, just so you know. But one of them, he said, was uh, humble about the theology. I like that. Because when we realize God's holiness, and if you want to use another word, his otherness, you realize you're not going to be able to understand everything about God. If you say you understand everything about God, then you're God. You know, there are things that God does and God says and in, in the Scriptures. We don't always understand what it means. That's, incidentally, why we worship. We bow down because we're submitting and we're saying to God, you're in control, holiness, otherness, different from me. And he sees God's glory. God's glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. I don't know if I did a very good job of it last night, but the reality is one of the reasons why I think you should be globally aware and locally involved, be globally aware and locally involved, because it helps you see the glory of God. It helps you see God miraculously at work. If you go online to the, uh, that conference we were at in, in um, Cape Town, South Africa, the most powerful testimony and the only time that 4,000 leaders from around the world gave a standing ovation was an 18-year-old North Korean girl giving her testimony of losing both parents, her father to the, the Korean government because he became a Christian, and her heart and desire to go back to North Korea. And you heard her story, and all you could say was, glory to God. The whole earth is full of his glory. When someone says to me, there's no Christian activity in such and such a place, I say, that, don't, don't confuse the fact there's no American activity with there's no Christian activity. You know, there, there are Chinese people in, in Yemen. There, there are people coming from, from, North, from uh, Central and South America going across North Africa. God's glory. The, the very diversity of all the cultures is part of God's glory. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you wave flags and you do things from other cultural traditions because it's reminding that we belong to this great multicultural family, to the glory of God. The whole earth is full of God's glory. But then he experiences, verse 4, God's power. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, Tim Shaughnessy was reminding me of the fact that we were together at uh, the Youth Specialties National Convention in 1989 in San Francisco. 
Remember the Earthquake World Series? Well, that was right in the middle of this conference. And I was speaking, and the room began to shake, and the uh, overhead projector fell over, the screen fell over. I think, glory, the Holy Spirit's coming down. You know, but, um, but it wasn't that. It was, you know, and, and everybody except me were Californians. So they didn't, they didn't even say, you know, earthquake, because they're like, oh, yeah, an earthquake. Let's, you know, let's go out in the street. And so they all ran out in the street, and I kind of followed them. But it's an amazing sense of power. I don't know if you get any earthquakes in Knoxville. Do you every once in a while? You know, but um, a, a real genuine earthquake is just human beings were at the mercy of God's power. And, and one of the things that needs to be behind our ministry is not only a sense of God's glory and God's holiness and God's sovereignty, but also of God's power. Now, I realize I could be on some dangerous turf here, but one of the things that I've learned from my brothers and sisters in Africa, Asia, and Latin America is they understand that God is the God of power. And you know where they understand that from? Because they're powerless. See, the more we try to be in control of things, the less we rely on God. I was asking a Nigerian guy, I said, how can you see so many more miracle healings in Nigeria than we see in the United States? And uh, he said, you have more doctors. And then he gave a great theological answer. He says, God heals you one way and he heals us another. But see, because the way you go get healed, you don't always attribute it to God. You know, I mean, if you, if you ever travel and, and uh, you know, in terms of God's power, be aware of the fact that sometimes in our evangelical American tradition, we've developed what I call the binity. The binity is uh, two members of the Holy Trinity, the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit's like way too dangerous. And it is dangerous. You know, my, my, my wife says our church has the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. You know, but it's, it's a dangerous thing. But the reality is God is the God of power. In Ghana, I asked them, I said, when you think about God, what do you think of? He says, well, I know your country. You think of the God of love. In Ghana, we think of the God of power. Now, I'm not saying to abuse that. And, you know, I was already briefed on the fact that that can sometimes become a confusing issue even in this home church. But the reality is, don't eliminate God's power because of the extremists. You know, I was in Nigeria the very first time, and they give you a young man to carry your bag for you, right? And uh, I thought he was, I actually thought I was getting ripped off. He comes along, he just scoops it up, and I said, give me that bag. He says, no, no, you're the old man, so I'm carrying your bag for you. So I got to know the guy a little bit, and I said, uh, I, I forget what his name was, Steve or Robert or something. I said, Robert, how did you become a Christian? He says, oh, Brother Rick over there raised me from the dead. So I said, suddenly my uh, I became a Christian on the youth retreat testimony <laughs> became, <laughs> became a little bit lame, you know. And uh, my wife, who's a medical person, she says, was he really dead? I said, no, he's just mostly dead, like Princess Bride, you know. But whatever it was, it was an encounter with power. But the point is not that we go looking for God's power. That's not my point. My point is in our ministry, we confess our total dependency. Because the only way people change is by God's power. I'm not talking about miracle working power. And, you know, although that's something, you know, by all means, pray for it. I, I was speaking, Kevin, you'll appreciate this. I was pre pre preaching at uh, Philadelphia College of the Bible, or PBU. 
And uh, I made this, I was suffering with chronic back pain at that point. And I had a ruptured disc, L4, L5, some of you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and I said, you know, when you, are, when you are suffering in pain, you don't call up your Baptist friends to have them pray for you. You call up your Pentecostal friends. Because your Baptist friends, Lord, encourage him, Lord, strengthen him, you know. Your Pentecostal, heal him, Jesus, heal him. It's like, okay. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that in your ministry. But I'm saying it's the day-to-day dependency on God's power. God, I'm powerless to, to say anything that could make a change in somebody's life. But you're powerful enough to do that. You know, I mean, and, and reality is that one of the lessons I learned from our poorer, economically poorer brothers and sisters, is they live with a greater sense of consistent dependency on God's power. If God doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. Or as my friend in Nigeria said, when my son had 105 fever, if God didn't heal him, he dies. I, I, we, I was with a, uh, a man who was a converted uh, satanic witch doctor from the Amazon. And he was speaking to my class at Gordon College. And, uh, and, I, and he lives in a, what we would call a very primitive, almost National Geographic type village setting. And... Uh, and we asked him the question, uh, his, name is, uh, his name now as a Christian is Bautista, Baptist. And he said, Bautista, where is it more difficult to be a Christian, in the United States or in your village? He said, oh, definitely, you people in the United States have a much more difficult time being a Christian. I said, why? He said, because in the village, if we're sick and God doesn't heal us, we die. If we go on the hunt and God doesn't lead us to game, we go hungry. We live in a day-to-day constant dependency upon God. And we were having lunch in the uh, Gordon College cafeteria. And he says, you, and he looks over the food. He says, you, you don't need to pray about anything. You can eat this food. It comes to you. And so we need to, uh, in our ministries, realize that, God, I don't know what to say. I'm dependent upon your power. I'm, I'm developing a friendship now with... Uh, a young man in, uh, in Boston area who is a medical doctor from Libya, all right? He's a very, very devout Muslim. And I've been already in three or four different dinner conversations with him where I'm praying. I'm just saying, Lord, I don't even know what the next question is, you know, because, because I'm outside my comfort zone. We talk about that, you know. If you're going to do ministry to the global neighbor, don't be afraid to go outside your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to say, Lord, I'm dependent upon your power. I'm weak and realizing my need for your holiness in my life. I really understand and need to really be conscious of your sovereignty. I need an upward vision. And, you know, that's something that Jesus affirms, actually, because in John chapter 12, verse 41, he says concerning Isaiah seeing the glory of Jesus, It says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. In other words, this passage, Isaiah is seeing Jesus. And so in short, our first vision for ministry has to be a vision that comes from Jesus, comes from that relationship, so that our serving, so that our investing, so that our growing is overflow. But there's more to the passage. Because Isaiah's vision starts upward. And then it goes inward. And he sees God. And he says, woe to me. 
Now, an interesting side note here is that uh, in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has actually said, woe to you, eight times. This is the first time he says, woe to me. And it's a reminder of the fact that, you know, when we only compare others against ourselves, we oftentimes find ourselves to be better than other people. Right? I mean, I, I live in the, the Boston area, very, very secular. Most people's theology is if I'm better than 51% of the people, I'm okay. You know, if I'm in the top half, I'm okay. And that's the way most of us do it. We, we compare ourselves. You know, we look down our noses at other people. We see someone with a tattoo or someone with lots of piercings or someone who just doesn't look like they belong in my world, and we make judgments about them. And Isaiah was a, a prophet, and one of the roles of a prophet was to say, thus says the Lord, and another role of the prophet was to say, woe to you. But now it's woe to me. And the vision inward is a vision of brokenness. That's why I love uh, Henry Nowen's term, wounded healers. I don't know what type of ministry you want to be involved in, but make sure you realize you're coming at it from a perspective of being a co-sinner with the people you're trying to touch. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. An amazing statement from a guy who made his profession as a speaker. Don't forget, if he's a prophet, the primary thing he does is speak. So what he's saying is, God, in light of your holiness, even the best I have to offer is unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. The thing I thought I was offering you is even unclean. And then he identifies with his culture. We're better at finger-pointing. You know, we say, oh, man, we live in a culture of liars. Rather than saying, Lord, I'm a liar. I misrepresent the truth by some of the things that I say. You know, I try to give an image of myself that's different than what maybe really is. Brokenness. You know, it's an amazing thing, but when leaders lead ministries from a posture of being wounded healers, of being people who are willing to say, I understand these people that are on the streets, these people that are in indigent, these people that are you know, suffering in poverty. I, I'd be in the exact same situation with a few bad choices along the way. You know, we're no different. Or as the old saying goes, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. You know, there's no better or worse people. And you know, when, when you understand that, it changes the way you look at everybody. When I was working on the staff of Grace Chapel, this actually story is in one of those books, I think. When I was working on the staff of Grace Chapel, um, I was youth pastor. And uh, one day, and Grace Chapel at that point in time was pretty much uh, 99.9% European, Caucasian, descended people, you know, and uh, pretty much a whiteout. And... Uh, and, and, uh, and a lot of middle class, upper middle class, a few people in the class of their own, I used to say, you know, but uh, a pretty middle class church. And uh, so, and we, you know, it was sport coats and ties, three-piece suits, that kind of stuff. And, and so um, uh, this guy comes into the office, and you could hear him pull up. He parked his Harley-Davidson 1250 outside, right? 
and he has a motorcycle helmet under his arm. He has a black T-shirt with a skull and crossbones on it that says Laconia, that's New Hampshire, Motorcycle Weekend. He has all black pants, black motorcycle boots, a chain to his wallet that jingles when he walks. He has a long bushy beard and a big bushy hair like the guy on ZZ Top. And uh, if you know who that is, you're not really a good Christian. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and he has tattoos up and down both arms including one that says FTW, which stands for The World. Rick will explain that later. And, uh, and he comes walking into the office, right, kind of joggling, and you can hear him jingling, you know. He goes to reception, yes, uh, Paul Bothwick here. And this receptionist calls on the intercom, Paul, you know, there's somebody here to see you, you know. And I walked out, hey, Scott. And then I introduced him to the receptionist, this is my brother. This is not my brother in Christ, at least at that point. This is my biological brother, right? Um, I became what my father wanted me to become. He became what I wanted to become. Anyhow, um, <laughs> there's some truth to that, but you can give me a treatment there later. Uh, and, uh, but you know something? When you say, this is my brother, it changes the way you look at a person. I'll never forget my five-foot-two mother walking down the street holding this biker's hand. You know, because it's her son. And it changes the way you look at people. I, I was at a church in New York not long ago, and I asked them, how many of you here have an opinion of Muslims? And 99% of them raised their hands. I said, how many of you have ever met and had a conversation with a Muslim? Maybe 5%. You know, what it's saying is, the news media, everything. We build up these opinions before we meet someone. And Isaiah's humility is basically saying, I'm a broken person, Lord. Uh, forgive me for not identifying with the very broken culture that I work in. But then the angel comes to him and says, you know, you're, you've been touched. You've been healed. So the inward vision is one of humility, but also an inward vision of, of rejoicing. Because I believe every aspect of our world neighbor ministry needs to be couched in the reality that we are forgiven sinners. That, that God has not only convicted us by his holiness, but redeemed us by his grace. It was his doing. We, you know, that's why, incidentally, we pray in Jesus' name. Because what we're saying every time we pray is not like I'm signing off, like, you know, CB radio. We're saying, in Jesus' name, I have no worthiness to come in my own name. I'm coming in Jesus' name because someone else has paid the price for me. And all ministry comes from springing forth from that. So whenever we're doing ministry, we have that strong sense of brokenness that I'm just a wounded healer who God can use by his power, but also that I'm forgiven. And that's why there is no ministry, in my opinion, that's either just deeds or words. Because the deeds we do, we do out of rejoicing that we're forgiven. And the words that we speak want to communicate that same rejoicing to someone else. Cross-cultural, cross the neighborhood, cross the street, cross the cubicle. Any way you look at it, we have a message because inwardly we see ourselves as broken yet redeemed. And then the outward vision. I said there were three aspects. He sees God, which is humbling and yet reminds him of his power. 
He sees himself, which reminds him of his brokenness and his being forgiven. And then God says from the heavenly throne room, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Here I am. In other words, his desire to do ministry in God's name flows from his vision upward, his vision inward. It doesn't start with the needs of the world. It doesn't start with the needs of the local community. It doesn't start with the opportunities in the church brochure. It starts with a sense that God, has, God is on the throne. He's recruited me to be involved. He's forgiven my sins in spite of my sinfulness. And now I'm so grateful. How many of you have seen the movie, uh, number one, the first movie, Shrek? All right. Now, I used to think in this passage... Isaiah, remember I said he would be mortified to see God. He would think to himself he's going to die. I used to think that when, when this experience happened, Isaiah would be uh, uh, you know, in God's presence, and he'd be kind of, you know, woe is me. He'd be looking down, and his lips get touched, and he's, he's still, you know. And then I, I always thought he'd heard God's voice, whom shall I ascend and who will go for us? And I always had this image of Isaiah kind of like, here I am, you know. I, I ain't got much, but send me. Then I saw Shrek. And you say, what? Well, there's a scene in the beginning when Shrek is going on a journey. Remember to, rens- re- to rescue Princess Fiona or whoever it is. And uh, he says, who wants to go with me? And there's Donkey. <laughs> Remember this scene? And he's like bouncing off the wall. You know, hey, I want to go, I want to go. And Shrek doesn't want to take him, but he's just bouncing off the wall because he's so excited to have a friend now. And Shrek has rescued him. If you remember, Shrek rescued him from the, uh, the prince's people or the king's people. And he's so excited. He's volunteering. Here I am, here I am. And I think that's the way Isaiah would have been. And that's the way I want to be. I want to get up every morning and see God on the throne, remember the greatness of salvation, and be able to say, yes, God, I am so grateful. I'm not doing this to get your pleasure. I'm doing this in response to your grace. It's an outward vision in ministry that basically says, in light of everything you've done for me, Jesus, I'm, here I am. Pick me. Pick me. The global neighborhood calls us into ministry. And you say, well, you didn't say that much about the global neighborhood. I didn't want to. I wanted to talk first about the global God who calls us into the global neighborhood. Because if we get obsessed with the vision inward, then we'll be so overwhelmed, almost depressed, because of brokenness. If we get uh, obsessed with the vision outward, the needs of the world will just break us. We all need to start with the vision upward. God is still on the throne. And from that vantage point, we see ourselves not just broken, but broken and forgiven. And we see the ministry of response. Now, I have, um, I'm going to just ask if we could take, uh, I have about, by my watch, about seven minutes for questions, do I? Tim? Five minutes for questions? All right, five minutes for questions. Anybody have a quick question? Yes, sir. So, 
Uh, that's probably the biggest single question rest, the American church is wrestling with. Uh, Hurricane Katrina brought that to our attention. And my answer is always this. There is no sense of either or in the Bible. There is no sense of either the local community or the, the world. You know, and unfortunately, in the history of missions, sometimes the mission-oriented people have only been concerned about something that involves crossing a body of salt water. Right? But the changing face of America, you know, meaning immigration, refugees, uh, all that kind of stuff, the changing face of America, the reality of poverty in our own midst, the one thing I will say, though, is this. For most of us, the more local the ministry, the more it involves an investment of ourselves and our time. And the more global the ministry, the more realistic it's going to be that it's going to involve our money and maybe our time in short term. But the reality is that it's, it's, not, bo- it's not either or, it's both and. I will also say this, if someone will indulge me, and that is, uh, in the perspective of proportion, yes, I don't discount the needs here at home. But proportionally speaking, America, the poorest American is still in the top 10% of the world's wealthy people. I mean, it's all perspective. Because I might think myself poor because my wife and I live in a 1,000-square-foot ranch house in a community of 4,000-square-foot million-dollar houses. So we might say to ourselves, well, we're poor. You know, compare yourself against Bill Gates. You know, it's like, yeah, I haven't got a jet. (laughs) You know? I mean, and... uh, and, and, but the reality is, that's one, actually, that's one of the reasons why I believe short-term missions are essential. Because if nothing else, short-term missions make you come back more grateful for what you have. And more willing to be sacrificial, I believe. Because you all of a sudden think to yourself, what else could I do with that money? You know, and, uh, but, but I, again, I don't, uh, I don't discount the local needs. My, my actual perspective is this. And I'll use this as my closing story. So we took one question. Um, I asked my students at Gordon, I teach a class called uh, Global Issues Facing the Global Church, which is kind of a whatever I want to talk about class. And uh, uh, I enjoy it. And uh, so I asked them the question, what is the worst pain and suffering in all the world? So I'll ask you that. What's the worst pain and suffering in all the world? Not having Jesus, that's, that's kind of like that, you know, what's gray and runs up and down a tree. I know the right answer right is Jesus, but it uh, sounds like a squirrel, you know. Um, all right, not having Jesus. What's the worst suffering in all the world? Cancer. Anybody else? Abuse. Watching your children starve to death. You're getting warmer. Ah. The worst suffering in all the world is my suffering. Right? Now, some of you young people don't understand this, but on my right foot, I have a bunion. I call it Paul's bunion. <laughs> it's a little American literary humor there. And, uh, and it's killing me right now. I have soft shoes on it. It's killing me. But if I'm going to care about your pain, I've got to get past my pain. Because there are times when if I'm wearing hard shoes like tomorrow, where if I want to, I can just think about that pain, and that's all that I can think about. That's the way pain is. It tends to preoccupy us. But it's an amazing thing, and I'll talk about this in the next next session. It's an amazing thing that the greatest people who have been ministers of the gospel, starting with our own Lord Jesus, 
would get by their own pain to care for somebody else's pain. In the seven last words of Jesus, three of them are directed to other people. You know, today you'll be with me in paradise. Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Father, forgive them. That's not to say he wasn't hungry and thirsty. He said it. Your pain is legitimate. But if all you think about is your pain, or if all we think about is our national pain, then we'll forget the fact that sometimes being Christian means getting past our pain to caring for the pain of someone whose pain is worse than ours. And again, we'll get to that a little bit later. So let's uh, break, and we'll shoot over to the sanctuary, and we'll continue there. And uh, thanks for your attentiveness.